you have your Bibles with me this morning, if you will please turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Again, that's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, let us never lose sight of your love for us. Keep it ever before us. For in it we are not only made new, but find new life in you. Grant us this, we pray, that you would open our eyes to your great grace, that we might truly see the magnitude of our great sin. Open our ears to hear your good news, and through a heart softened by your gift of faith, that we might be transformed in complete surrender. For this we pray. You may be seated. As Jesus came to Jericho, a great excitement began to build across the city. People were lining the street just to get a glimpse of him. Now, there was a man in that town who was much despised. You see, he was a tax collector who had gotten rich off of others. His name was Zacchaeus. He too had heard of Jesus and he wanted to see him. He was a small man, scripture tells us, short in stature. And as he went along the street, Jesus would be coming down. There was just no place for him to stand, no place for him to see him as he went by. No one would let him in or give him space to where he could see Jesus. And so he ran ahead. At that point, well, you most likely remember the story. He climbed up into a sycamore tree just so that he could get a glimpse of Jesus. And as Jesus came near, he stopped and he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down for I must stay at your house today. Excited to be noticed and recognized by him, he hurried down and he received him joyfully at his house. What we see next in this story is not just a life transformed, but how a heart changes when Christ comes to live in it. See, the people were astonished at this turn of events. I mean, of all the people Jesus could have spent time with in that city, he chose this man, a hated, reviled tax collector. And they grumbled, didn't they? Their jealousy pouring forth, they scoffed. <laughs> He's gone to be the guest in the house of a sinner. Now Zacchaeus, so moved by Christ's love for him, stood and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
And you can just imagine that Christ smiled, can't you? I mean, he'd been heard to say that the angels in heaven would rejoice and throw a party for one lost sinner who was saved, who had repented. And this man, who had oppressed so many, had come to faith. It was more than just an acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, but a heart that had truly been changed. For not only did he repent of the wrongs, that he had done and make amends for that. But also something happened within him. You see, just as Jesus showed loving kindness to him, Zacchaeus now was determined to show loving kindness to those around him. I want you to hear what Jesus says at the end of this encounter. He says this, Today, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now catch this, what he says next. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 18. See, this story illustrates very closely I believe what John is saying here in his first epistle, which is what I want us to consider today. These three points. First, we love only because he first loved us. We love only because he first loved us. Two, a heart of generosity flows from that love. And three, a heart of generosity serves as evidence of a heart reborn. I mean, this is an important point. Generous people give as a byproduct of their own personal transformation. I mean, we see that not only here in this story, but we also see it with the widow who gave all that she had, even just a mite. But it's not just that. We see it with the church in Philippi as they partnered with Paul. We see it in the church in Corinth as they took a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. But most boldly, we see it in the book of Acts with the early church. You see, there were many without and many who had. And those who had sold what they had and brought it to the feet of the apostles to distribute as needed. And chief among them was Barnabas, whom they called a son of encouragement. See, this is a beautiful picture of a church transformed being characterized by generosity. So let's take a few moments to consider these points as we walk through 1 John 3:16. First, we love because he first loved us. You see the passage starts with these words, by this we know. See of all the things, this we can be certain of because of something we experienced or observed. By this we know. See, there is a certainty that the author states. Something we know above all things, and this is love. See, the passage puts it this way. By this we know love. Not by anything else will we know love. But the perfect picture, the perfect example, the perfect definition, this is love, that he, Jesus, 
laid down his life for us. John wasn't the only one who used this kind of word picture throughout scripture. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God. Oh, two of the greatest words ever spoken. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it wasn't just that we were sinners. We were sworn enemies of God. We hated him. We were not even seeking after him. In fact, when he came, what did the people try to do? They tried to kill him. They sought to kill him. And if you think us any different, had we been there, we too would have yelled, crucify him. Crucify. Don't think we would have. How does scripture describe our state? Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul tells us that we were dead in our sins. Not just sick, but dead. More than that, he quotes from across the spectrum of the Old Testament when he says, none is righteous. And in case you didn't catch that, none is righteous, he says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And if this indictment is not enough, he continues to pronounce the judgment on our condition of depravity. He says, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, he says. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. This is the backdrop of that picture of God's love for us. That Christ came to die for you and I. David Steele wrote, We are so spiritually bankrupt that we can do nothing pertaining to our salvation. It might seem as though many unsaved people, when judged by, by man's standards, do possess admirable qualities and do perform virtuous acts. But in the spiritual realm, when judged by God's standards, the unsaved sinner is incapable of good. See, the judgment against man is clear. Let me walk through it with me. John 3, 19, after that great, beautiful verse of John 3, 16, 3, 19 says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. 
Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Proverbs 20, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And again from Ecclesiastes 7, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, all, all, we have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And Job 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? See, we have before us this warning from the book of Hebrews in light of this passage. And it is this, the writer of Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, for a sinner alone, without the grace and mercy of God, having cleansed his soul, will only find himself in the hands of an angry God. But the sinner who is granted grace the sinner who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ only finds mercy, forgiveness, life, and glory in the one who laid down his life. Beloved, despite all of this picture, as dark as it is, this is the backdrop to how we know Despite the depravity of our souls, we know what love is. It is Christ coming to live the perfect life that we couldn't so that he could die for us, paying the penalty for sin, knowing we could not. And rising again, defeating the curse and ascending to heaven where he is at the right hand of the Father, even today, interceding for you by name. This is love. And this is generosity. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. This is generosity in its most pure form. For Christ gave himself for you. It was a gift beyond measure. The picture of love is the greatest picture of generosity. That is why we know. That is why we know. That's why we know what love is. As the hymn writer wrote, Love divine, so great and wondrous, deep and mighty, pure, sublime, coming from the heart of Jesus, just the same through tests of time. He, the pearly gates, will open so that I may enter in. For he purchased my redemption and forgave me all my sins. So what are we to do with this? The author of Hebrews says this. We must pay more 
careful attention. Not just we must pay careful attention, but he says we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels is binding, he says, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And he says this, but we see Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for his own. And so we see that we know what love is because of the sacrificial work of Christ. We not only know what love is, we see that it is inextricably tied to a heart of generosity. Which leads us to our second point. A heart of generosity flows from that love. See, if you think back to the story of Zacchaeus, we see this very point illustrated. We see that in that story, Zacchaeus stood up and he said, Lord, Lord, curious, My Lord, my Master, my God. He declared in this one word his belief that Jesus was God and King. He said, Lord, I give half my belongings to the poor. And if I, I give restitution to anyone I've defrauded. You see, a heart of generosity flows out of the love Christ has shown to you. See, the love of our Lord is given not because it can be earned or paid for, but precisely because it can't. See, sacrificial love is generosity pictured. You see, that's why John starts with the greater argument and moves to the lesser. Because we know what love is, he says, we also ought to lay down our lives for others, and we ought to give of what we have. See, he goes from the greater argument to the lesser. And it should be done freely and liberally without expectation. It should be given to those who cannot give back. It should be given to those who sin against us. This is exactly what Zacchaeus does. So what are the implications of a heart of gratitude that flows from love? What are the implications of this? What might it look like in a world that hates God? and hates his people. Jim Elliot had a passion for those who had never heard the gospel. He felt a call to reach the unreachable, didn't he? And in this case, it was the, the Alka Indian tribe in Ecuador. And as they went out to meet the approaching Alcas, ten warriors came at them with their spears. Now, they could have gone home that day. They could have defended themselves. They were armed with guns. They, were, they had the ammunition. They could have gone home to their families. But Jim and the other missionaries had made the decision not to fight back with their guns should this be the welcome. See, they were willing to die for the gospel rather than kill another that had not believed in it yet. They were willing to die for the gospel rather than kill another that had not yet heard it that day, and so they perished. 
They gave up their lives freely, willingly, without expectation. We should be willing to lay down our lives. Are we willing? Seriously, are we willing? See, this is the argument John was making. You see, if you aren't willing to give up your life for another, then giving up what you have for another, that becomes measured, doesn't it? You see, you start to see it as yours instead of his. You see, when it is his bank, when it is his, the bank is never empty. It's always full. But when it's yours, it always looks like there's never enough. And so you close your fist. See, the words John uses here in this passage, he says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but, now catch this, in deed and in truth. You see, the sense of the word deed is a work or an occupation, right? Something which we identify ourselves with. That's what it's talking about when it comes to love in deed. It becomes a work or an occupation. Our generosity should well up within us as an extension of who we are. Our work in this world should be no less than a generous spirit in all things. Our work, our occupation, our mission, our effort, our calling, all of it is to be done with a generous spirit that comes from the source of true love and generosity, which is Jesus the Christ. Now, how do we know this last part? Well, as we said, the passage says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and catch this, in truth. You see, John says that this work should not just be our deed, our work, our occupation, our life, our calling, but it, that it should be done in truth. See, the word truth is the same as that used to describe Christ in John chapter 1. And it's the same word used in John chapter 3 when John says this, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, now catch this, in God. See, the source of our generosity is Christ himself. Generosity or love wells up within us in, in many different ways. A listening ear, helpful hand, giving of time, sharing talents, demonstrating affection, and even sharing what we have. See, the question remains, though, where does generosity sit as a matter of our heart? Where does it sit as a matter of our heart? See, as Christians, we've been called to live lives that are so distinctive that it causes the world to stand up and take note. And that distinctiveness is not just displayed in our ethics and morality, and indeed it should be. But that's not what should cause the world to stand up and take note. What should cause the world to stand up and take note is our generosity and love. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, they will know you by what? Your love. 
right? Your love. Love not just for those in our congregation, love not just for those who love us, but for those who don't know us, who don't love us, or can't repay us. Precisely that. This is the kind of love and generosity that will cause people to take note and say, hey, something is different about John. What is it? I want that. The hymn writer wrote, God's command to love each other is required of every man, showing mercy to a brother mirrors his redemptive plan. In compassion he is given of his love that is divine. On the cross sins were forgiven. Joy and peace are fully thine. See, John begins this section with certainty. By this we know. But the subject of this certainty is one of necessity. It is love. It is a trait we must have if we're his. Just as the source of our love is that he loved us, so the source of our generosity is this, that he has given us all things and we in turn can give to another. And it's a recognition of that. Which brings us to our third point, a heart of generosity serves as evidence to a heart that's reborn. John says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Matthew Henry said, and this was our, our um, meditation this morning, he wrote this. He says, this love will give us hope towards God, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. It is a great happiness to be assured in our, of our integrity in religion. Those that are so assured may have holy boldness or confidence towards God. They may appeal to him from the censures and condemnation of the world. The way to arrive at the knowledge of our own truth and uprightness in Christianity. Now hear what he says here. And to secure our inward peace is to abound in love and in the works of love towards others. You want to grow in full assurance of your love for him? Grow in love and generosity towards others. Love your neighbor as yourself. We must acknowledge the life of generosity that wells up out of his love for us. If we hold our fist tight, we should question whether he has a place in our heart. If we open our hands freely, compassionately, assurance as to our hope wells up deep within and gives great encouragement and peace. See, Jesus reminded us that the poor we will always have. So, so to some he gives more than they need, to others less. And to all the command is to love our brothers and give generously to meet their needs. That is the command. How can we say we love God if we see others so desperately in need of him and yet we walk away? See, it's not just physical needs, it's spiritual needs as well. You hoarding the gospel. As 
So the application question is, what areas of my life have I been holding too close? What things have I been valuing too highly? How can I hallow his name better in the pursuit of his calling in my life to be generous? How can I better hallow his name through the daily bread given to me? How am I building others up or helping to carry them each day? How am I building others up? Through the trials of life. Most importantly, where do I need to rely on him even more? Knowing I cannot do this without him. Not one bit of it. Beloved, our generosity should grant us great encouragement, even in the common grace of provision, that we are his and he is ours. that he delights in his children and will provide all that we need. It points us to his redemption and his mercy towards us. We begin to live life freely as a result, and I've talked about this with you all before. We've, we, we begin to live life freely with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. I mean, what does the freedom, a life of generosity look like in the life of a Christian? It looks like this. It is confidence. It is confidence that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's what a life of freedom in the midst of a life of generosity, that's what it looks like. George Mueller, the father to orphans, at the end of his life sat down for an interview. I've read this to you all before, but I wanted to read it again because it provides some interesting insights into the application of this idea of generosity as a matter of the heart. The reporter was sitting there with George Mueller and he said, now you've always found the Lord faithful to his promise. And George Mueller said, always. He has never failed me. For nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. The orphans from the first until now have numbered 9,500. That was his work. 9,500 orphans. He said, but they have never wanted a meal. Hundreds of times we've commenced the day without a penny, but our Heavenly Father has sent supplies the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when we had no wholesome meal. During all these years, I've been enabled to trust in the living God alone. The reporter then asked, well, I suppose you've never contemplated a, re a reserve fund, right? I mean, that seems like a valid question to me, doesn't it to you? George Mueller responded, he said, to do so would be an act of the greatest folly. How could I pray if I had reserves? God would say, bring out those reserves, George Mueller. Oh, I never thought of such a thing. Our reserve funds is in heaven. 
The living God is our sufficiency. I've trusted in, in him for one dollar, and I've trusted in him for thousands. And never, never trusted in vain. Blessed is the man that trusts in him, Psalm 34. The reporter continued, he said, well, of course, you've never thought of saving for yourself. At that point, George Mueller unbuttoned his coat and he pulled out his purse. It was an old-fashioned purse. It had rings in the middle separating the different kinds of coins. And he set it into the hands of the reporter. And he said quietly, all I am possessed of is in that purse, every penny. Save for myself. Never. Never. This was not something that came to George Mueller naturally. As a young man, as with all of us, he was not even remotely interested in God. So how can we grow in our assurance of faith? How can we grow in our assurance of him? Well, thanks be to God. This is what we hear from the story of Zacchaeus, don't we? Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, with Christ, all things are possible. All things. But without him, you can do nothing. See, if it weren't for the Son of Man seeking, pursuing, and saving, we would be without hope. But thanks be to God for Christ. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, the bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim. But Christ. No two greater words have ever been spoken. But Christ. The bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim, but Christ swings open the door with arms outstretched, and he bids you come. He bids you come. The bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim, but Christ says, repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1. The bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim, but Christ says, believe and you will be saved. John 3, the bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim, but Christ says, I offer you living water. John 4, the bow of God's wrath is stretched and takes aim, but Christ says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Matthew 11, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Beloved, trust in him today. Find a life of freedom that comes from a life of generosity. Be freed from the hamster wheel of this world, a hamster wheel that, that never ends, is never satisfying, is never enough. 
find your rest and satisfaction in him and find a life of true freedom through the generosity given by his love. As the hymn writer wrote, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to your great love. Let us not miss it or take it for granted. Open our ears to hear your call and open our hands so that we can give as Christ gave. Make us more like him. Grant what you command and command what you desire.